Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. And I'm Devin, and I have a master's in American history and indigenous studies. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that seeks to go through the ritualized year and discuss the folklore and history of the celebrations and other markers of the passage of time that we engage with through the year. This week's episode is Christmas! What, what? Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas to anyone celebrating, and if you don't celebrate it, you can get some context of how we got here, because yeah, th- this is a relatively new... Well, the way we celebrate it is a relatively new holiday anyway. Yeah, and we can invite you to also celebrate it if you want to start celebrating it, because the religiosity of it this doesn't really exist either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At least not in a historical context. So celebrating it as like a consumer and cultural holiday isn't really the bad thing that it's made out to be. I myself celebrate December 25th Christmas as essentially a secular holiday because I don't have yeah. religious Christmas until January 7th. Hooray <laughs> <laughs> for the Julian calendar. <laughs> okay, so Sonia, do you want to start us off with our history of Christmas back in ye olden times? Yes. All right, we're gonna roll it the, back, way, way days. back to the classical world. So you know, the first few centuries when this whole Christianity idea is just getting off the ground. Believe it or not, no one really cared about Christmas for the first little while. <laughs> like, back in the day, it was really Easter that was a big deal, right? Because that's... Yeah. Um, so you'd have, like, Easter was the really big celebration. Mm-hmm. And there were other feast days that people would celebrate. But really, in the early festivals that are listed by, you know, Christian writers like Tertullian, nobody is even listing Christmas as something that's important. Yeah. Um, and you also have writers at the same time saying, you know, like celebrating birthdays is bad and silly, as we talked about in our birthday episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Point to our earlier content mm-hmm. for reference. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, so that's in about 297, where you have um, Arnobius specifically writing about how birthdays are a pagan celebration and good Christians should not, you know, commemorate any birthdays. Mm -hmm. And then you have, though, a slight shift in the 350s AD, because the chronography actually records a Christmas celebration that took place in Rome uh, earlier in 336. Okay. So basically, it, it gets off to a very slow start of, you know, it seems like for the early, for the, the early Christians, Christmas, not a big deal. Yeah. By the time you're reaching, like, the 500s, mm-hmm. so the early Middle Ages you are starting to see kind of Christmas-adjacent holidays. Mm -hmm. So Epiphany becomes really, really popular. And that becomes sort of um, 
So in Western Christianity, the Epiphany is really focused on the visit of the Magi or the three wise men who come and deliver gifts to the baby Jesus. Mm -hmm. But the medieval calendar kind of slowly starts to become dominated by these like Christmas adjacent holidays. Mm -hmm. So you have these 40 days before Christmas that become known as the 40 days of St. Martin, which starts November 11th on the feast of St. Martin of Tours. And that's what actually becomes modern day Advent, right? So this idea of oh. 40 days of anticipation of the birth of Christ. Okay. What does what does St. Um, Martin have to do with it? Uh, he doesn't really have a lot to do with it. It's just... Basically, he was a very popular saint. <laughs> and it seems like there was sort of established this idea that, okay, in preparation for Christmas, which at this point is still, like, by this time it christmas has become recognized as like a day in the church mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily like this big huge like celebration that we think of it as now mm -hmm. but it seems like basically saint martin is a popular saint in medieval europe and there comes about this idea of fasting for 40 days and having this sort of 40 days of kind of spiritual reflection mm -hmm. um, in in preparation for Christmas. Because again, at this point, Christmas is still very much a, a day where you're sort of supposed to focus on quiet contemplation mm -hmm. and religiosity and like thinking about, you know, what it means for Jesus to have been born on the earth, yeah. basically. At the same time, as basically Christianity is slowly spreading throughout Europe, you do start to see somewhat of a merging of Christian and pagan customs. Mm -hmm. Because, again, if you show up in town and say, no fun allowed, <laughs> no one's really going to want to hang out with you. Yeah. But if you show up and say, oh, you know... All this, all the the greenery that you like to bring into your home for Saturnalia or for Yule, well, that's um, sort of like how Jesus can live forever, and how the death and cold of the winter is nothing to, you know, the immortality and beauty and majesty of God. Yeah. So, right, it's basically you take these symbols and they end up changing meaning in this context. And I want, I, I see a lot of like, well, okay, it's, it's just a pagan holiday still. And it's, a, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, to be clear, they're taking a few of the aspects of it. They're taking the window dressing and saying, yeah, mm -hmm. sure. You can keep like bringing greenery into your home and like, Having, yeah. you know, maybe having a feast or whatever, but, you know, they're not doing any of the other, like, pagan rituals that would be associated with this. They're not engaging with that. Yeah. And I, I just want to be very clear on that, that there is sort of a, like, uh, a melding of cultures and religions 
that does happen and that does become sort of a um, like taking something that you already have and sort of giving it new meaning and you know we still do that <laughs> well, to like, this I day mean, we, I mean we do this with I'm pretty sure most people who things. are like yeah I mean the one that I always bring it back to is yeah like western wedding traditions like you look at the idea of wearing a bridal veil I'm like the idea of that is to protect the bride from the evil eye <laughs> but I don't think I don't think brides today are walking down the aisle thinking oh yeah great that I have this veil because yeah. I don't want the evil eye to get me or like you know we still have bridesmaids which the idea of having bridesmaids was to confuse evil spirits so they wouldn't know which which one was the bride yeah. so they couldn't figure out who to curse and it's like it's sort of the same thing here where they're you're taking certain things but giving them a very different yeah, meaning yeah where it's like can't you like stand up with me on the anyway. wedding and it's like this just means that like you're very close to me and i want you to have this important role in this moment with me it's not about like I might be hexed. <laughs> exactly. It's not, you know, the, I might be cursed by a witch, so I need you to be a protective barrier. Yeah. And, I'm, and like, the, like, children's songs and nursery rhymes and things are just something, you know, they've, they're essentially, like, comforting sounds more than anything. They're not, like, actual, like, a lot of these things, you know... Like Hansel and Gretel, we still tell, yeah. but it doesn't have the like meaning that it had for like medieval children. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think yeah. that's just something where I do want, and that's why I do feel comfortable being like, yeah, in a lot of ways, not everyone celebrates Christmas today as a secular holiday, but. I mean, a lot of people have taken these same traditions and turned them into, like, a non-religious, yeah, essentially, like a holiday. and like gathering. Exactly. A recognition yeah. of family rather than the birth of Christ. Yeah, and I think, like, that's, you know, how holidays go. Yeah, <laughs> like, exa that's, yeah exactly. Things change over the centuries. Yeah. But anyway, back to how Christmas becomes important. Okay. So what happens is you slowly start to see more and more kind of weight being put to this. Mm -hmm. Because again, as it's integrating with other cultures, there is this much bigger emphasis on like, we need a winter holiday yeah. to give us something to live for <laughs> through the cold, dark months. But also you see the rise of prominence of Christmas because you start to see a lot of very important coronations happen because oh. it's basically a way for you to, if you get crowned on Christmas day, it's sort of this, um, legitimizing force. Yeah, it's like your so, reign is born at the same time as mm -hmm, Jesus. As, yep. <laughs> And the way this all starts is actually when Charlemagne is crowned the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire on Christmas Day in the year 800 uh, by the Pope. Okay. Which, I mean, to be clear, the Holy Roman Empire was uh, not 
particularly holy or Roman or much of an empire. But by 800, they're like, we want to sort of bring back this idea of Rome being important and of having this kind of bigger, bigger influence and bigger reach. And Charlemagne basically puts up a little bit of like, oh, no, no, I am so humble. I would I would do no such thing. But I mean, the Pope's crowns him on Christmas Day in the year 800, and he goes, cool, I'm the emperor now. Yeah. So basically after that, that's another big aspect of it that makes it a popular coronation day okay. because it's A, my reign is born at the same time as Christ, and B... I am following in the footsteps of Charlemagne, yeah. like a big, important figure. Um, so we see this, you know, again, in 1066, King William I of England, mm-hmm. when William conquers England, he gets crowned on Christmas yeah. Day. Because, again, it's legitimizing your rule. It's giving it this extra sort of veneer of, like, I Ordained am... by God. Exactly. God blesses this yeah. <laughs> this reign of mine. So basically, this is the kind of this combination of both the sort of high culture and, you know, kings being crowned on this day with it being a very popular time to, you know, basically have feasts and have a good time Mm -hmm. with sort of common people means that this does start coming to prominence. And by the high Middle Ages, Christmas has become such a big deal that chroniclers um, just start noting routinely, like how people celebrated Christmas. So, you know, you you have notes where it's like, King Richard II of England hosted a feast for Christmas, and, you know, they ate 300 sheep, and this many people were invited, and this many boars yeah. were <laughs> killed in the royal hunt, and it becomes this big deal, basically. Mm-hmm. And, again, at this point, it is very much a reveling holiday, as we've talked about before. Like, yes, you are supposed to, you you definitely will be going to church Mm -hmm. a lot. I mean, it's it's literally Christ Mass. You do go (laughs) to Mass for it. But it's also a time where people go caroling, you sing songs, you, you know, you have the lords and ladies of misrule. So people get drunk, they gamble, they're promiscuous, they give gifts, they have huge bonfires and yule logs going, they Mm -hmm. have, you know, special alcoholic Christmas drinks like Vassail, which I guess it's not technically a Christmas drink, but, you know, it's it's kind of festive food and drink. Mm -hmm. But surprisingly, actually... It is not just the Protestant... For for once, I'm not just going after the Protestant Reformation as a whole. (laughs) Because even when the Protestant Reformation happens, lots of the new denominations keep celebrating Christmas because it's popular and fun. And also, you don't want to fight a bunch of people by saying, you're not allowed to have fun anymore. Yeah. So, like, the Anglican Church keeps Christmas. The Lutheran Church keeps Christmas. Um, You know, obviously, there are some differences, like 
there's an attempt in the Lutheran tradition to say that, no, 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 St. Nicholas doesn't bring the presents anymore. It's actually the baby Jesus who brings ah. you presents because, you know, of course, saints are, you know, suspect. But by and large, people just keep on celebrating it because, you know, it's technically in the Bible <laughs> that there was gift-giving at Christmas mm -hmm. and that the birth of Christ was a notable event, so you're allowed to celebrate yeah. it. But then the Puritans <laughs> arrive. <laughs> because in the 17th century in England, the Puritans are basically going around saying... No, Lutherans, Anglicans, your Protestantism isn't Protestant enough for us. <laughs> you are still wrapping yourselves in the, quote, trappings of popery. <laughs> so we must put an end to it. And, you know, all this drunkenness and misbehavior and people having fun has to stop. <laughs> because, I mean, well... I was going to apologize to, if the, if you're a Puritan listening to this. I don't know if there are any Puritans I left. Mean, like, so there are congregations that are like the descendants of American yeah. Puritans, but like even they aren't like. We yeah, wear this scarlet letter. <laughs> like some. A uh, lot and of also, them I mean, actually, I assume like, some you of wouldn't the most chill Protestant congregations. Yes. In the United States now, our descendants, our descendants of Puritans. Of Puritans. Like you look back at like what they were doing in Massachusetts in the 1600s, and you're like, "Ooh, <laughs> oh man, wow, they really thought children were evil." <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, so that's that's sort of what happens is Puritans are take everything about the Protestant Reformation <laughs> with like. You know, ritual is suspect, mm -hmm. and, like, traditions are suspect, and then just turn that up to, like, 11 out of yeah. 10, where they're like, no, all of that bad, throw yeah. it away, sit at home and think about how evil you are. <laughs> so they banned it in England in the 17th century, and it wasn't restored as a legal holiday until dun -dun -dun -dun, the Restoration <laughs> in 1660, but... It kind of still remained this like disreputable holiday for quite a while mm -hmm. where it it's still culturally in England ended up being associated with, you know, drunkenness, tomfoolery, misbehavior. Mm -hmm. But it did maintain being a very important holiday in many other parts of Europe. So in France, in Germany, in Eastern mm -hmm. Europe, like it still maintained that. But because England went on to colonize a bunch of places, <laughs> yeah. their view of Christmas, they brought it with them. Yeah. So now that we're hopping over to the Americas, I think it's Devin's turn. Yeah, so I mean, like, I can, like, really explore the Puritans some more. Um, and Let's go! And I talked about this briefly um, when we were talking about Christmas foods and stuff, because... Like, that's sort of the the reasons why the American holiday looks the way it is, is because it wasn't really a thing in the Americas because of Puritans for a long time. And we talked about, like, the actual traditions of, like, what the 
reveling looked like and like how kind of wild and out of hand it can get and so like the just like as a reminder of what we talked about in the last episode about like the christmas foods we can talk about like why exactly the puritans didn't like christmas again so like the number one thing is again that they didn't feel that it was a holiday that was about jesus um they didn't think that I mean, the the quote, again, from Increase Mather is, if Jesus wanted us to celebrate his birthday, he would have at least told us when it was. Which is just, like, really, really reading Christmas for filth there. Um, (laughs) And two, like, they hated reveling holidays, so they didn't think, they thought that any sort of, quote, willfulness... And, like, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll come back to this, too. So there, there's an important part of why they didn't, like, reveling holidays and later sort of some of the other traditions of Christmas that become more important when Americans do start celebrating. Um, but the basic idea of the Puritan soul in the 17th century was that people were born with original sin and that the marker of that sin was willfulness and individualism and so anyone who's exhibiting any sort of like pushback against the community or like wanting to be their own kind of person or make their own decisions or or not really fall in line with what the the Puritan community at large had decided was good and holy, like, that was a marker of their sin. And one of the, they really believed in, like, corporal punishment and, like, that you can, you you have to punish any sign of willfulness like that. So reveling was right out. Um, right. They, and as part of this, like, right, they, to ensure that the, the, colonies stayed like pure and holy they man they did manage to outlaw celebrating christmas for 20 years in the mid um 17th century it cost you would be fined five shillings did it cost you would be fined five shillings for celebrating christmas and right if you were caught like being publicly drunk in the during the christmas season you could be fined another five shillings There is, like, this other sort of issue that, like, as... And I'll, like, clarify this a little bit more as we get into the 19th century. But... And this also does... I'm I'm getting kind of confusing here. But this next point is about how class dynamics develop once the U.S. starts to industrialize. But also about willfulness again. So the US starts to develop like in the late 17th early 18th century the colonies start to develop really their own sort of culture and class structure outside of the very rigid um, British class structure with the like lords of manners and you know the nobility and all of those rankings. The US doesn't yes. have that. So it's it's very much based on like municipal status, on 
wealth, on these other, like, sort of trappings of class, and any sort of subversion of that can be really dangerous, and subverting that also points to this willfulness and this sinfulness. And so, instead of being, like, a valve for releasing the steam and sort of bent up and pent up resentment of the working class towards the like lords and ladies um since since the paternalism of the the society isn't really strong enough to deal with that they just want to quash it um yeah and so like as a result you get a lot of discussions of of when the Puritans realize that they're not going to be able to completely just crush Christmas, it starts to become more of this this discussion of temperance and moderation, and they start turning it into a family holiday, the way that Americans um, and people in North America really think about Christmas now as less of a party holiday. Um, and this is specifically for, like, Anglo Americans and Canadians because yeah. um like I'm marrying a French Canadian and they're much more about like yes you you hang out with your family but you hang out with your family to drink until you have to go to mass <laughs> so it's like you just stay up all night on Christmas Eve drinking and then Christmas day is for recovering from your Christmas Eve hangover so like you know Fair. there's a little bit of difference there um in like the the Quebec Catholic-influenced area of North America. But for Anglo-Protestants, it became this very much this, like, temperate family holiday that was very much focused on children, um, and that, like, until the 19th century didn't actually take place on Christmas Day, they're much more likely to put it closer to the New Year, um, which, again, probably has to do with the importance of epiphany in Britain. Um... So with all of that, that sort of gets us up to what I talked about in the the last episode about the food and how, like, that would be sort of the gifts that would be given was like, oh, hey, mom, we showed up, we brought this ham or we brought this lamb or whatever that we had. Right. Um, let's have, like, a New Year's feast. Um, and that's sort of what was going on in the 18th century and it didn't really change much for like that entire century. It was just sort of like, if you were going to celebrate it at all, like that's sort of what was going on. And as the early 19th century comes around, you know, America is now, the United States is now its own country. Like Canada is now like a unified sort of ish. Like it's not <laughs> like there, yeah. there are multiple parts of Canada in a few years oh we're we're yeah, trying in a couple at that of, point we're doing our in a couple best. of decades you're gonna get to um responsible what's it called responsible government um you yes. know it's starting to become more of an identity to be in Canada. yeah like they still think that they're british but whatever um, that's it's, up for it's obviously it's, it's that's up for all of Quebec <laughs> where they were like yes. no who are also like we are French <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but so you have like this new thing it's also the 
the 19th century is the period when things start to urbanize and industrialize. So what we're going to see in so what we're going to see in the 19th century is this conflict over like what the spirit of Christmas is, whether or not yes. it's this very like stayed daytime affair for family and church services and like eating rich foods and thinking about your children or is it this rowdy nighttime revel out in the streets out in the public like a public holiday for like the poor and ne'er-do-wells and youths <laughs> there's a lot of talk of the, oh those youths there's a lot of talk of the youths <laughs> the youths uh oh those youths yeah, and this this really comes at this conflict arises because of the development of the urban working class and a class of wage laborers. So yeah, so this conflict for the spirit of Christmas really yes. comes from the development of an urban working class and a new uh, like system of wage labor. So traditionally right in the period that like Sonia was talking about the Christmas season would be a time for the slowing down of work but it was because you weren't going out in the fields and doing stuff anymore and it was a period of yeah. like plenty you were able to you know it was cold enough to slaughter animals and keep the meat fresh you had you know, still a lot of stuff in your winter stores. There would be, for, like, the winter vegetables, they would be fresh. You uh, would have just finished fermenting beer from the fall. So you had all of this stuff. So it was, like, a pretty yep. sweet time to be basically anyone in this period because you didn't have to work and you got to eat a lot of food. Basically, yeah, it was pretty sick being a peasant then. Yeah. I was all right. Dope being a peasant. Uh... Once, like, the industrialization starts really happening and you get this, like, wage labor class, uh, the opposite happens. So yes. you get a lot of people moved into cities, working in factories, and a lot of these early factories, especially in the early 19th century, are along rivers because they would be, you know, hydropowered, like, with mills, water mills, yeah. and things like that. And then would be using the rivers to transport things, like along the St. Lawrence or um, the Hudson. And they would also dump their trash in the river. Yeah. Putting that in there, too. That was also convenient. Yes. Yeah, because then it would just take it away. Um, but, like, that's where you yep. get, you know, like, Montreal, all of the cities along the Hudson, um, in New mm -hmm. York, uh, you know, all of these major thoroughfares that we see along rivers that's why those cities sort of built up there um but yeah. what happens in the middle of winter is that the st lawrence the hudson river they freeze over and then yep. you can't power your mill you can't ship anything you can't throw anything out in it because it's solid <laughs> it's a solid block of ice um so in order to, like, I mean, they can't work, so people are laid off 
for periods of the yep. holidays. Um, and that's real bad because they were being paid so little that there was no savings. Um, and in the places where this would happen, it's really cold. It's really cold. Yes. And the people who are selling fuel know that. They know that people need more fuel. And much like Uber, they're all about the surge pricing. So as fuel gets more expensive, people have less money. It becomes this, like, period every year of extreme want, especially in Canada. Um, Yeah, it becomes, you know, they call it the wolf at the door. Like, you're just constantly waiting for the next catastrophe. It is not a good time. Um, It's also, like there would be a lot of people like moving house at this time. It's actually, that's part of the explanation for why Quebec has a moving day every year to make sure that people weren't forced out of their homes in the middle of winter. Um, Yep. And it's now illegal to evict people in the winter in Montreal. Which is great. Which it should be illegal everywhere to evict people in the winter. Or at all or like in general but like especially in the winter yeah especially in the winter you monsters um but yeah so it was like this this it was a really bad time and what starts happening is this tradition of misrule Mm -hmm. in this period when people are starving and poor and their kids are freezing and they might have just been kicked out of their homes it goes from being like this like paternalistic period of like oh we'll let those people let off some steam and we'll feed them in like exchange for their goodwill right so now we've both agreed to be a part of this to Rich people not wanting to participate at all, um, because, like, the poor deserve to be poor, and the poor being like, you guys suck, I'm angry, I'm drunk, and my children are dying, so, like, I am going to destroy your home and, like, make yep. this an actual legitimate protest. Um, and the owning classes obviously did not want to encourage this, because they were like, Oh no, we don't want any protest. <laughs> We've seen France. No thank you. <laughs> I would like to keep my head attached to the rest of my body. Um, and so there is this pushback. So like we had had a century sort of of Christmas slowly starting to get a foothold in the US. And then you see like an extreme pushback against it. Like we don't want to have anything to do with Christmas Um, for a couple of decades. It's really only mentioned in passing in new in newspapers or in almanacs of the time. Um, And most of the time when it's mentioned, it's talking about the like gang activity or the what's called the Calathumpian bands. Yes. Um, And so if you've seen gangs of New York, Obviously, that's not, like, super historically accurate, oh, but yeah. also, like, they get the vibe right that, yeah. like, yes, like, New York, these urban areas are being ruled by, essentially, these gangs of working class men and, like, young men, especially, yeah. um, 
who are willing to go out into the streets and, like, provide, like, on one level, like, provide services Mm -hmm. for their people, but also, like, provide the service of, we will scream at the owning class for you. And that's sort of what the Calathumpian bands were. They were people who, at Christmas time, in the tradition of Caroline, would go out with, like, tin pots and like garbage can lids and things and like bang on them and scream at rich people um all through these because like this was also the period of this kind of like proto-suburbanization so people moving further north onto in manhattan like on the island moving north and setting up these like estates in what was previously uninhabited like well, it was obviously originally indigenous land that people did live on, and then they kicked them off the island, and then, like... Yeah. So there wasn't anybody there. It was, like, farmland, and they set up these estates. Um, and, like, in Montreal, a similar thing happened uh, with moving up onto the mountain. Um, and in Boston, they sort of moved away from the city center. So this was happening, so people would, like, leave the the condensed urban impoverished areas and go out to these rich areas and break down fences break down hedges bring their animals to like like feed them on the lawns (laughs) of these rich people and like make a ruckus set fires do all kinds of things there's also like a lot of racial violence so they would go into like other neighborhoods um where there were like recent immigrants or um african-americans neighborhoods of freed slaves and like burn them down uh yeah so that was like not ideal no it was really really bad um direct your anger at the rich people yeah it does point to the intense like destabilization of society that's going on um yeah in periods of like serious economic crisis you see more like, racialized violence, especially in a very, very racialized society like the United States. Yeah. Um, so then what you have are rich people being like, we need to, like, establish Christmas as a good temperate holiday where everybody stays inside. You know, we need to, like, make it about, like, being inside with family um, because if we create that for ourselves, then it'll be an example to these, like, poor idiots, because they thought that poor people were inherently oh, bad yeah. and stupid. Do we? Um, <laughs> Is that not still the case, Devin? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, everything is so bad. It's fine. But, like, they're, they were also, like, I mean, like, we, like... As brazen as capitalists and capitalist sympathizers are now, like, they were even worse. This is true. In the early 19th That's century. Um, so, like, there was literally this whole thing about, like, how the gentle peasantry had... Uh, now that they had newspapers and were reading, they had gotten all of these ideas. 
and <sighs> could no longer be controlled, and they weren't, like, their brains just couldn't handle all of these ideas, and so it was upsetting them, and that's why they were out, like, doing all of those things. It wasn't that, like, you kicked them out of their house in the middle of freaking winter and oh, no, they certainly don't have any not. food and you're sitting there in your big old house on you know the upper east side like with your roaring fireplace your and your 20 servants yeah. yeah no with your servants and your massive feast and you're still doing the thing of like going from neighbor's house to neighbor's house to neighbor's house and getting beverages and getting free food like that's not why they're upset. It's that, oh, someone let them read and their poor little brains can't handle it. Like, this was literally in newspaper articles. So what yes. happens is people like John Pintard and uh, Clement Clark Moore, um, John Pintard was the founder of the New York Historical Society. Right. They start using things like the Historical Society to move these public celebrations into private venues like again like getting rich people to open their houses but only to other rich people so it becomes very divided um by class and instead of focusing on this like outward public adult holiday they start focusing on their children yes um which is to them an acceptable version of the Christmas time power inversion. So children don't have any power in a early 19th century family. They are, you know, this is the period of the seen, not heard kind of yes. like your children are supposed to be brought out after dinner to by their governess to see the parents for like 10 minutes, an hour. Yeah. And then they go back and be children somewhere else you know this is that period so like by making an entire holiday that is about giving gifts to the children paying attention to children it's really inverting the the social norms of this owning class um and as part of this this is when we see santa claus um clement clark moore really invents the what becomes the modern idea of saint nicholas as santa claus in the poem um, A Visit from St. Nicholas, which a lot of people know as um, Twas the Night Before Christmas. And we'll have more information about Um, how we actually arrive at Santa Claus in our bonus content this week. Yes, we will. So sign up on Patreon to get that sweet, sweet bonus St. Nick content. Um, Anyway, Santa Claus sort of comes into being in the 1820s. Um, It is thought of as, like, a revival of this Dutch tradition, but, again, that was just... It was a a much smaller thing that was celebrated on December 6th, which is the feast right. day of St. Nicholas. It's a children's day. Um, and what comes to be Santa Claus really has nothing to do with that. It's just these people sort of utilizing... Again, utilizing mm-hmm. an old tradition to have a new meaning that is productive for the new society. Um, and so what you have is uh, essentially Christmas gifts, um, which are gifts parents give to children, uh, basically so that you can participate in what was thought of as the spirit of Christmas 
generosity, power inversions, and everything without actually letting poor people into your house. Yes. <laughs> um, so there's all of these sort of stories, this literature that comes about in this period from American writers like Clement Clark Moore and Washington Irving about this sort of fictionalized idea of what Christmas used to be. And like, oh, if we could only get back to the good old days um, when, you know, like, the gifts were the food that the Lord bestowed upon his peasants as if the peasants didn't actually make all of that food themselves and have to give yep. it to the Lord first to be given back only part of it. Sure. Whatever. Yep. Um, but in all of these stories, there's sort of this this acknowledgement that that's never going to happen again and we have to find another way to do it and to imitate it within the family circle. And that's where you get, like, these children presents. And in this 1830s kind of area, after these stories have sort of been disseminated across the, the new United States and then in Britain as well, um, you get the rise of these commercial yes. presents. So people aren't making presents, the presents are no longer food because if it's within your family, there are you everyone in the family already has access exactly. to that fancy food. Yeah. Right. Having dinner is no longer a like a gift. That's not a a gift if well, you're going to have especially that anyway. like so you have to get you know, feeding your kids is not a gift. That's like the bare <laughs> minimum of parenting, I would argue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not starving your and, children. <laughs> Way to go, Victorian A+. parents. <laughs> but and and also, yeah, I mean that makes sense that I mean, we do have like children getting presents pre-industrialization, but that normally would have taken the form of like you know, I I guess like in the aristocracy, right? Maybe you'd have like fancier toys, but for most normal people it would have just been like handmade dolls or like a hoop and a stick kind yeah. of thing. So this is new, this yeah, idea yeah, yeah. of like manufactured gifts for kids. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, they have to like go because this is a shift that is taking place nominally in this owning class. It, it couldn't just be your general food and or toys mm -hmm. that they would already have, right? Because, like, you're already feeding them, and they already have those simple toys. So it becomes much more commercial, even in the foods that are given. So, like, obviously, oranges and, like, bonbons, fancy candies mm -hmm. are part of that. Because, again, something that is purchased, something that is unusual, something that is expensive, and something that they wouldn't normally have. So, like, these fancy chocolates citrus fruits, things like that that are hard to get, and then these manufactured toys and books and things like that. Um, and this is a gradual transition in the way that we might think about it now, but in terms of, like, human traditions changing, this is yes. incredibly fast. Like, in the span yeah. of a generation, this idea of Christmas totally changes. And it's really fueled by this machine of capitalism, right? Merchants realize that this is a great idea. Um, the wealthy want to keep the streets cleaned up. Merchants want to keep the streets cleaned up because then rich people yep. will come and buy stuff. And obviously shoppers 
who are also sort of that first group don't want to be harassed while walking between shops. So they, the, the merchants, the wealthy people purchasing things, and newspapers and advertisers sort of all team up to create this idea of what like good Christian people are doing at Christmas and it's buying presents for your family and like shopping and doing all of these things. And it really very rapidly changes the way that we think about Christmas and that reveling holiday is sort of crushed today, crushed to death under the weight of yep. commercialism. Um, and like, obviously people realize what's happening and worry about it, but not in the sense of like, oh, our traditions are changing, more in the sense of, oh, suddenly we're so commercialized and our children are going to be really spoiled. Um, And this is where also you see this distinction in the development of what childhood is. So, like middle-class children and the children of the owning class are seen as (coughs) innocence, are seen as, like, as actual children, as children as we would think of them today, whereas the poor are the rowdy youths who need to be controlled, right? They're not, they don't have the benefit of being children. Um, So a lot of the Christmas stuff is about we have to get rid of this reveling holiday to protect the innocent children. And by innocent children, they mean middle class and owning class children. Um, And also that we need to make sure, like, as we're doing this, we need to make sure that our children don't become spoiled and evil. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this is when we uh, start seeing Christmas trees. So Christmas trees start popping up around the 1830s as a way to deal with like the worries around the just giving children stuff. Um, So there's a couple of different systems of how the Christmas tree is used in the United States. And again, it's used in this, the, the, the sort of myth of the Christmas tree is perpetuated through literature in the same way that, Santa Claus was and is talked about as if it was this folk tradition from Germany, um, which the way that it's used in America really has nothing to do with this folk tradition in Germany and is happening well before Queen Victoria. So that whole, like how it happens more in Britain is different from what's happening there. Um, So what we see, Ray, is these discussions of like these stories that are published in magazines especially women's magazines about like oh well I was at my friends and they have this German maid and she put up this Christmas tree and covered the tree in uh in their little trees like just the tops of an evergreen that would be set on a table and she she tied toys to all the branches in secret and then brought the children in and the children got all of these presents and isn't this beautiful, like, we should do this. And so there's the the surprising children aspect so that they're not expecting Mm -hmm. the presents and so it's just, like, this gift from whatever. Um, But also around the tree they developed 
these things that had absolutely nothing to do with German traditions where, like, children would also put presents under Mm -hmm. the tree that would be given to their elders, so parents or especially grandparents. Um, And so then you're, you're sort of training the children in generosity and reciprocity and this is really picked up by um unitarians because unlike the puritans who thought that you needed to beat willfulness out of children they were like children are inherently good and you just need to train them in the ways of being good and you can do this by like showing them traditions that are built on these ideas. And so, like, yes, you can give them a bunch of presents, but you need to teach them to also give presents and not just expect to receive things. And so the Christmas tree and Santa Claus is this, like, the early 19th century, so, like, the 1920s through the 1940s are really just... 18. 19. (laughs) The 1830s to the 1840s is this period of like inventing traditions but and inventing especially commercial traditions but setting them up in such a way so that they seem like they're old yes. folk traditions and yeah and yeah. i mean a, a lot of that does end up happening in britain as well if we bounce back across to like you know charles yeah. dickens really like popularizes the idea yeah. of like you know, a Christmas carol and how, you know, the whole point is that Scrooge learns to, you know, be generous and be kind to others. And it's, you know, this very much about trying to rebrand Christmas, essentially, as this like, yeah. ah, like good, wholesome family holiday where we, you know, where you should give to others and be more generous with others. Yeah. Um, but I also, yeah. Yeah, so, like, that literary tradition goes both yeah. ways pretty quickly across the Atlantic. So Washington Irving and Clement Clark Moore mm-hmm. are being read in Britain, and Dickens very oh, yeah. quickly is being read in the U.S. And so, like, that is why when we look at, I mean, aside from Christmas crackers, yeah. like, in the U.S., where we don't do that, but I know in Anglo Canada yeah. they do, like, the traditions of Christmas are exactly. so similar because of this literary And exchange. I think it if anything, it also becomes more and more so, you know, you get more and more hegemony around this sort of what is the ideal middle-class Christmas um, as the 19th century yeah. goes on. Because, again, like you're talking about, especially in um, in newspapers, but especially in, like, women's magazines, you're getting things like, you know, Harper's Bazaar publishing The Art of Christmas Shopping in 1881, where yeah. I just, it, here we go. Right, so there's, um, you know, there there is The Art of Christmas Shopping, where it's giving this sort of idea of sort of teaching the women who are reading this how to properly give a gift. <laughs> so, you know, they're talking about, well, I mean, some of it is quite reasonable like okay if you have a lot of friends who you want to send presents to and you can't afford to do that just send along some nice christmas cards but it's again a commercial christmas card you have to go buy them um and this is 
This part is also interesting. Do not let your friends suspect that your remembrance is actuated more by charity than regard, for their poverty is the last thing they wish to have obtruded upon their notice at Christmas. A young girl might be pleased with a lace pin or a shell comb, but would resent a pair of gloves or a bonnet as a reflection upon her appearance. So it's this idea (laughs) of, like, you have to sort of you know, be very careful about your gift giving because you, A, the gifts have to be bought. They cannot be homemade. And they (laughs) also have to, like, dance on this very particular line of they cannot, they're not supposed to be practical. Because if you give someone, you know, a bonnet or gloves, then mm-hmm. while that might be misconstrued, misconstrued as, oh, well, I think that the bonnet and gloves you have aren't good enough. Whereas if you give her like a nice comb yeah. or a nice pin, it's like, oh, well, that's, you know, here's like a small luxury for you. So there are kind of these. Yeah. And yeah, it, it just kind of more and more so it becomes these rules around what exactly is an acceptable gift. Um, you know, even. Yeah. There's one from 1902 I have here that's in the Ladies' Home Journal that is what to give on Christmas Day. And it's actually, they go through every family member and every person who you might have to be, or or be expected really to give gifts to. So there's for the grandmother of the family, for the grandfather, the mother, the father, the elder sister, for the young man in the family, for a little girl. For a 12-year-old boy, for a 6-year-old boy, what to give the baby? And then, outside the family, it's presents for the minister, for the invalid, for the servants, for the people on the immediate outside. Like, they all kind of go through a very, you know, these these lists of what is acceptable for a, a present. So structured. Right? And I just think it's very interesting that... You know, because these are basic, like they are quite literally manufactured traditions that you see more and more these articles that are coming out basically teaching people how to perform Christmas and how to perform these, um, these actions that they're supposed to take. Um, so you also get, as you were saying, a lot about, you know, children and what to do with children in, into the early 20th century, there's, you know, this whole list of what not to do on Christmas, again, from the Ladies' Home Journal, which is, you know, when it comes to your children, don't allow the child to eat rich poultry as goose, duck, and turkey, or rich desserts as pies, plum pudding, anything fried, or nuts and raisins. Um, so don't Christmas al- food. Yeah, so don't let him eat <laughs> Christmas food. Don't allow him to sit up late. Don't take him to the theater unless he is at least 10 years old, which honestly, not, not a bad tip just for, for modern times. (laughs) Maybe not 10 years old, but you know, if you're bringing an infant to the theater, I I can, I can respect this. Don't, don't bring a baby to the theater. (laughs) And I think sort of the last, like kind of another, like very, um, we're teaching people how to perform this is you even have like pre-made menus 
that are that start to be published, especially like late 19th, early 20th century. So, you know, it'll say Christmas dinners and they'll give you listed out from, you know, appetizers to first course, second course, third course, what to do for dessert, what to do for drinks, like the whole thing. So if you want to, you can have tomato soup with croutons, cabbage salad with wafers, followed by a roast chicken, and oysters in giblet sauce. Then you also want to have on the side cider sauce, cranberry jelly, browned mashed potatoes, and creamed onions. And after that, you're supposed to have coffee with homemade peanut brittle and chocolates. Or, you know, if you prefer, you could have Turkish soup with croutons, along with celery, olives, roasted ribs of beef, brown sauce, coleslaw, brown soup stock with croutons, and again, roasted capon, oyster sauce, and cranberry jelly. And then again, they're going through sort of um, different types of desserts that you can have. A lot of them are listing, you know, make sure that you have coffee, make sure you have bonbons, and... Uh, you know, chocolates, which again, it's very much, you're, you're being given a how-to manual of how how to celebrate something that hypothetically is supposed to be like an old tradition of days gone by. Yeah, and I think it's fascinating too, like the commercial aspect of it in this period, it's not just teaching you how to do Christmas, but also how to participate in this new industrial capitalist commercial society, right? Like yes. there are such it's teaching you to be a good yeah, consumer. There's such strict rules around like how you talk about class, how you talk about how much money you have, how you express that like through what you have, like the aspirational aspects of it, you know, people don't want to be reminded of their station. Like, mm-hmm. it it really is, like, using, using this supposed folk tradition to teach people how to be good consumers. Yep. And also how to, how to play your correct yeah. role in society. Because the other thing to remember is, especially, I mean, in the UK and then in, you know, Canada. And I think, I don't know if Australia and New Zealand do this, but you know, you have Boxing Day. So this idea that, well, that's the day after Christmas when the middle class and well-to-do people box up some food and clothes and, you know, maybe a few, a few simple toys (laughs) for those rowdy youths. And you go to the poor and generously bestow your cast off clothes upon them. And, you know, if you're a poor person, you're supposed to be very grateful and happy that they would, you know, deign to to help you in this cold time of year. So it's, yeah, it's very much about not only teaching you to be a good consumer, but teaching you to be, teaching you to fit into your new class, your new stations. Yeah. Yeah. Which, like... So I guess we're at that part of the episode where we talk about, like, what what to take away from this. And since Christmas is, like, literally this week, yep, and it's probably going to be a different Christmas for most people, because we can't go and be with all of our family like we normally would, like... 
I mean, now that we've done this deep dive into what Christmas was, what it became, and why it became that, like, we can, I think, take this opportunity of, like, Christmas, a new kind of Christmas being forced upon us to choose what we want it to mean this year and in the future. Yeah, and I think, exactly, and I think, you know, saying we don't actually have to follow these, like, very strict guidelines of, you know, you need to have this type of meal, and you need to have these types of decorations, and, you know, these types of gifts, and it, you know, you're ticking all your little boxes, and it's like, you can choose other ways to celebrate yeah you can you know you don't have to it doesn't have to be a consumerist holiday and you know again until the really the mid 18 not really until the mid 19th century it wasn't about consumerism yeah and And also handmade gifts are great give people homemade food homemade presents yeah it doesn't you know, I think like this is a time like because because we're being forced into a a period of change, we can look at it and say, like, if I want to celebrate this holiday, who do I want to celebrate it with, and what do I want it to mean? And if you don't want it to be a system for expressing your status as a consumer in the, like, ideal Puritan family unit, like, (laughs) you can, one, choose who you spend it with. Like, Mm -hmm. chosen families are just as valid as your biological families. Oftentimes, like, more so. I love my biological family, but I know that it's, like, a serious, just in case any of them are listening, I love you. (laughs) But, like, I know that a a lot of people struggle with that. And so, like, choosing... Like, especially this year, you don't have to be on that Zoom call, right? Yep. Like, and and I would say, you know, <laughs> yeah, A, you don't have to be on the Zoom call. And if nothing else, even if you do want to hop on the Zoom call, if you don't have a great relationship with your biological family, if nothing else, at least you don't have to go and hang out with them in person. Yeah, and, like, maybe this is the way that you, like, sort of slowly... I, I also love my family. I just want to <laughs> put that in there. But, you know, I do know that it's, the holidays can be rough. Yeah, and so, like, this can be a like a window into the opportunity of spending Christmas with the people who who mean the most to you. If you're doing that virtually or eventually when we can do things in person again, like, you don't have to feel obligated to do something because there isn't necessarily the history of it. You know, you don't yeah. need to feel obligated by tradition to, yeah. to do something. And I mean, if you really want to go traditional Christmas, I would suggest screaming in drink, the streets, revel, scream in the streets, bang some <laughs> pots and pans and, uh, burn down a rich person's yard, <laughs> destroy a fence. <laughs> I mean, I'm not advocating vandalism, just saying that historically that yes. would be the activity. Of exactly. The day. <laughs> so, you know, if you really, you know, that is what historically it is. 
And so, so yeah, Keep don't feel obligated mind, by choices. tradition. And, yeah. and like, if you want to give gifts, you can give the gift of your time. You can give the gift of like a homemade object or food or something that shows that like you were consciously thinking of that person like you don't have to spend money especially in a time in the united states where like people haven't been able to work and the government hasn't been supporting you and yeah like going outside is dangerous like don't feel and like you need to spend any of the money that you do have on buying frivolous stuff like, yeah your time is a gift your any objects that you have or repurpose that is a gift consumerism is trash and i would also <laughs> say if if you do have a little extra money to spread around you know maybe do spend it at like you know places where people are you know making yeah like things for christmas right like Someone's supporting not trying these... to steal their time yeah, exactly. Like these smaller, like independent creators who would benefit from, yeah, you know, you buying from them. Um, you know, independent bookstores are having a hard time right now. Yeah, and as per usual, I mean, give money to your if again if you can, you know, supporting your local mutual aid, um, yeah. local food banks. Soup kitchens, that's all going to be really important. And... Yeah, especially since in the U.S. in the coming months, uh, it is illegal to evict people in the winter. Uh, and as we've talked about, Christmas being this dark period of want and need, like, mutual aid and things like that can be a way to prevent some of the fallout for that. And yes. to like, bond people together to help work for change. Well, as as my... as the only valid iteration of the Grinch movie reminds us, <laughs> maybe Christmas doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, <laughs> perhaps, means a little bit more. Let your heart grow three times. Yes. <laughs> I can't believe we just quoted the Grinch. It is one of the best Christmas movies, and that's a hill I will die on. <laughs> and I only like three Christmas movies, so... <laughs> okay. Well, four, but one of them is cursed, so... <laughs> I, I'm a sucker for Santa Claus is coming to town, and it's oh. the little... It, it's stop-motion puppets, and I know yeah. people get real mad about the stop-motion puppets. Yeah, they're... Yeah, so that's that's they're my cursed the haunted Christmas dolls movie. Of Christmas. Well, as you know, I also have my haunted dolls, <laughs> so... Haunted doll. Okay. Uh, well, we're taking a break for a couple of weeks. We'll be back with an episode about um, New Year's celebrations slash epiphany featuring a guest... Hopefully. And so, whatever you're celebrating, happy holidays. Have a good one. We'll see you in the new year. And 
remember to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and if you would like to access our bonus content and help support the channel, signing up on Patreon is always great. Yes, we would very much appreciate it. (laughs) Stay safe, stay healthy, do good work. We'll see you in 2021. (laughs) Thanks, sweet baby Jesus. Thank you.